If you've been with us, you know that we've spent the last year and a half going through uh, Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so we spent a long time in these three chapters, um, and it's been great. I've loved it, really enjoyed processing that together as a community. But today we're starting something new, and we're going to take these next six gatherings, and we're going to go through the six core values of our community. If you don't know them, which I know all of you know them by heart, uh, they're right here in really small text on the screen. Uh, kingdom over brand, known by love, no one alone, called and capable, honor the least, and safe and dangerous. Okay, those are our six core values as a community. We're going to take one uh, per gathering. Now, before we dive in, there's something I think we, we all need to understand. Everyone has two sets of values. Okay, we all have two sets of values, the ones you say and the ones you do. Okay, these are called your, I'm going to write this on the board. These are called your aspirational values and your actual values. Okay, and everyone has a gap between those two sets of values. Okay, what we say matters most to us and how we actually live our lives don't always match up. Okay, I know that's true for me. What about y'all, right? I mean, we will say these are the things that matter most to us. These are our values, but those are not always uh, reflected in the way that we live our lives. So one of the greatest and most important challenges that we face in life is shrinking that gap is shrinking that gap and making the things that we say matter most to us a reality in our lives. So here's our goal for the next six gatherings, that we as individuals and as a community would internalize these six values. That these shared convictions would deeply shape our community and guide us in the direction that God wants us to go. So above all, our goal is, um, I hope we agree, that our goal is to shape our lives and our community around the person of Jesus. Therefore, these values do not matter if they don't reflect the things that matter most to Jesus. So the most important thing that we will do each week will be to explore how each of these values are contextualized uh, expressions of the core values held by Jesus and his followers. Okay, these are Jesus's values expressed through our community in our time and place. They're contextualized expressions of Jesus's values. So as we continue to move towards Jesus together, these values should become more and more of a reality in our lives. Okay, that's the hope. And hopefully that will happen over these next three months or so. So with that being said, uh, let's dive into our first core value, kingdom over brand. Okay, we're going to read a passage together. If you have a Bible or your phone, you want to pull it up, you're welcome to. It'll also be up on the screen. We're going to be reading from John chapter 3. Okay, John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll read this passage. Father, I pray as, as we explore uh, this first value together, as a community, that uh, we would not just see how this matters to our community, but we would see how this matters to each one of us 
and how it plays out differently in each one of our lives. And that as we leave this place, that your kingdom would be more and more uh, supreme in our life, that it would take precedence over all the other things that we fill our days and our weeks with. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. It's very small. I apologize. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out to the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John, okay, this is John the Baptist, not John who wrote the book. He also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because there was plenty of water there. And people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends to the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Now, I want you to imagine you're a first century Jewish person and you're walking through the Judean countryside. You come across Jesus. He's teaching to a crowd of people. So you approach the crowd and you listen in. What do you think you are likely to hear Jesus talking about? Any guesses? What are you most likely to hear Jesus talking about? Repentance. I'm sure you'd be talking about that. Yep, definitely. I know this is like, makes you uncomfortable because you don't want to get it wrong. The kingdom, kingdom, right. Okay. He talks about all these stuff like, like, and, and most of us, right, would say love, repentance, following him, discipleship, whatever it might be. But the kingdom is the most frequent thing that Jesus talked about. If you look through the gospels and just highlight Jesus's words, the thing that keeps coming up over and over and over again is the kingdom, Everything else Jesus talked about all pointed back to this core message. The kingdom of God is here. This is what the New Testament writers referred to as the good news, okay, or what is often called the gospel. Okay, the kingdom of God has arrived on earth, and this is what it looks like. Okay, here's one example of this. We just, like I said, we just spent the last year and a half going through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' most complete and thorough recorded teaching. If you want to know what Jesus thought about himself or what he came to do, look no further than the Sermon on the Mount. Now, look how Matthew introduces the sermon. We, we, didn't t- we haven't talked about this for a while because this was back at the beginning. But in Matthew chapter 4, This is how Matthew, the author of the book of Matthew, introduces Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He writes, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. 
So what does it look like to proclaim the good news of the kingdom? We'll see the following three chapters where Jesus lays it all out in his Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is all about life in the kingdom of God. So if you've ever wondered what matters most to Jesus, what he values most, he makes it very clear that the kingdom of God is at the top of that list. This is the most core conviction that Jesus held, that he came to bring and to build the kingdom of God here on earth. So the question is, is this your core conviction? Is this our community's core conviction? Not just one that we aspire to, but one that is actually lived out in everything we do. Do we truly want the kingdom of God over our own kingdom? We'll come back to that question in a moment. So some of you may be wondering, what what does this have to do with John the Baptist, right? We read a story about John the Baptist at the beginning. What does all this have to do with him? Well, John the Baptist is a very important and pivotal figure in the story of the Bible. He was born into a world of many kingdoms. Okay, there there is the political kingdom. Okay, the Roman Empire had expanded aggressively throughout the known world, bringing the so-called good news that by the divine power of Caesar and the unmatched strength of his military, peace would be brought to the whole world. Okay, this is the Roman gospel that was proclaimed throughout, throughout the world. There are the local kingdoms. Okay, the rich and the powerful in Israel are promised that if they bow down and proclaim that Caesar is Lord, then they not only would be spared, but elevated and given their own slice of power within the empire. And there is the religious kingdom. Okay, the priests and the scribes who use their place of authority to increase their wealth and power and influence over the rest of Israel. So John the Baptist is born into this world and he witnesses the corruption, the abuse, the injustices of these kingdoms. And at some point, John discerns that his calling is to lead a revival movement in Israel. So as is typical of prophets, John does something that's very symbolic. He goes out into the wilderness to the Jordan River and he reenacts the origin story of God's people. Okay, that's what John's doing out at the Jordan River. And the origin story goes briefly like this. Okay, a thousand, thousand years earlier, before John, after wandering in the wilderness, Israel crossed through the Jordan River into the land that God promised them. God had made a covenant with Israel that they would be his people and live in the promised land so that they would be God's blessing to the nations, reflecting God's mercy, love, and justice to the world. And if you have ever taken time to read through the Old Testament, then you know that Israel failed at their part of the covenant over and over and over again. And John believes that at this point in time, God's people had fallen so far from their calling that it was was time to confront this failure and start all over. So he invites the people of Israel to come out to the Jordan River and turn from their sins, repent from their sins and, and their rebellion towards God and pass through the waters again. It was time to renew their covenant commitment to be God's representatives 
in the world. This represents a fresh start, okay? A new people of God coming through the Jordan River into the promised land to be what God has called them to be. So what John does at the Jordan River is a public and explicit rejection of the counterfeit kingdoms that exist around him. It is is a rejection of Caesar as Lord over the world. It is a rejection of the local kings in Israel who bow down to Caesar. It is a rejection of the temple leaders and their oppressive chokehold on the people of Israel. And most importantly, it prepared the way, as it says in Mark 1, for the true king of the world to come and establish his kingdom. So one day Jesus shows up and he takes part in in John's renewal movement, this display, this this restart of Israel. He takes part in this, this prophetic act that John is doing. Jesus's baptism in the Jordan River is not only the start of his ministry, but it is the inauguration of a new people of God who would build his kingdom here on earth. As Jesus passes through the Jordan, as the leader of a new community who would represent God here on earth. Okay, that's what Jesus does when he when he's enters through the Jordan. So John confronts the counterfeit kingdoms around him, and he makes the way for the true king, but we see in our passage in John 3, what we read earlier, that John faces one more counterfeit kingdom. It is a kingdom that we all face, and it is by far the hardest to overcome. The last kingdom that John must reject is his own. Look at what what it says here in verse 25. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan... The one you testified about, he's referring to Jesus. Look, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him. Do you catch what they're saying? Jesus is competing with you. He's stealing your thunder. Your ministry will be dead if everyone keeps going to him. Now, let's try to empathize with John's disciples a little bit. They don't fully understand who Jesus is. And we see shortly after this that even John had his doubts about who Jesus was. So just just try to put yourself in John's shoes in this moment as they bring this to him. Imagine that feeling of, of all that success, all that attention, all the respect of all the people. Okay, people from everywhere are coming to see you. John was trending on Twitter, right? Okay, he was, everyone's listening to his podcast. Everyone's reading his blog. Like, he is a big deal. Then overnight, all that glory, all that attention, all that respect was gone. And it was now focused on someone else. If you've ever experienced anything like that, I mean, imagine how that might feel. So John is faced with a a dilemma. Is he going to make way for the kingdom of God, even if it means stepping to the side? Or is he going to give into the temptation to build his own kingdom 
grasping for success and attention. This is the battle that's going on within him. What's fascinating to me is that Jesus faces this same temptation right after John baptizes him. Jesus enters into the wilderness and he's tempted by the enemy. And and one of the temptations goes like this in Matthew chapter four, verse eight. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus has to decide. Is he going to seize power and control for himself? Or is he going to follow the father's plan for the kingdom, even if it means a humiliating and painful death, which he knew was coming? Jesus, of course, rejects this temptation and gives himself fully to building the kingdom of God. But how does John respond? Look at verse 27. To this, John replied, a person can only receive what is given to them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I've said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends to the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. What is John saying there? The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The people of God belong to Jesus. I'm just a friend of the groom. Who am I to expect anything from the bride? The pastors really need to hear this. I mean, who are we to expect anything for ourselves from the bride of Christ? Can I truly say like John, that I am filled with joy because the attention is not on me, but it's on Jesus. And then John wraps it up with this powerful statement and and something, if you have never, go back to that last slide, if you've never memorized a Bible verse, here's your chance. Okay, verse 30. He must become greater. I must become less. He must become greater. I must become less. He must be followed and I be left behind. He must be praised and I be overlooked. He must be adored and I be neglected. He must be honored and I be forgotten. Can we say that? John chose to humbly step aside and allow people to encounter the person that he had spent his life pointing them towards. He chose to play his part in building the kingdom of God instead of holding tightly to his own. This is a tension that we all face. Daily, we must choose between two kingdoms. Are we going to join Jesus in building his kingdom or are we going to build our own? And there's a sinister reality about this choice, especially for churches and church leaders, because these two options can look very similar in practice. Just think about this. What was John's temptation? 
to get more people to come to him so he could baptize them. Right? That seems great. To get more people to attend our gatherings, to get more people listening to our podcast, to get more people following us on social media because we post about Jesus. On the surface, this all seems like good things. But when it's motivated by pride or a need for attention or to get people to respect you more, we are building a counterfeit kingdom. Mother Teresa once said, how sad is it when someone comes to you looking for Jesus and all they see is you? We must grow as people who humbly point others to Jesus and not ourselves. We must be a church community that cares more about people falling in love with Jesus than our way of doing church. And what makes this value, I think, so difficult to make a reality in our lives is that it is about more than just our actions. It's about our motivations. Even our displays of humility can be motivated by selfish desires. So this is something that we each need to be working out in our own hearts. Just between you and Jesus, like, do, do I truly want your kingdom over my own? Do I truly want your kingdom over my style or model of church? Do I truly want your kingdom over my preferences? Do I truly want your kingdom over my comfort? Do I truly want your kingdom over my success? Do I want your kingdom over my opinions, over my honor, over my self-image, over my happiness, over my security? Do we truly want Jesus' kingdom over these things? And I'll be the first to say that I don't have this value internalized. Hey, this is much more over in the aspirational category for me. I struggle to honestly say, may he become greater and I become less. And I have a list of things that I struggle to let go of for the sake of Jesus's kingdom. So here's my encouragement to you as, as we enter into a time of worship. And Brian and Piers, you can make your way up here. I've moved all your things around, so good luck. During this time of worship, I want you to just, if, if, you're, if you're willing, ask Jesus to reveal to you one thing that you are unwilling to give up for the sake of his kingdom. There's more than one, trust me. Just, just find one. And if you'd like, as always, we got the note cards on the table. You can jot it down on one of those cards. And, and as he reveals that one thing to you, whatever he puts on your heart or mind, just simply pray, Lord, may your kingdom become greater in my life than fill in the blank. May your kingdom become greater in my life than financial security. May your kingdom become greater in my life than a relationship. May your kingdom become greater in my life than the freedom to do whatever I want. 
May your kingdom become greater in my life than attention. May your kingdom become greater in my life than people thinking well of me. Whatever it is, make that your prayer. And in a few moments, we'll come together and worship. going to sit down because crowds make me nervous. Um, so um, this is um, sort of thematic. I'm, I'm a doer. Um, I'm always trying to work on things. I'm always trying to make things better. I have, professionally, I'm an engineer, so that sort of makes sense. Um, life is an iterative process. I'm, I'm always trying to take what I've learned and, you know, make improvements, try to optimize, you know, outcomes, all of that in work and uh, in life. And it, um, it ends up being a lot sometimes. Um, and uh, I'm going to put that down. I don't need that. Um, but um, there's, there's a lot of this that I've been trying to figure out. Um, because there's not an equation for that, which is frustrating for me as a <laughs> as a technical person. It's like there's no there's no way to figure it out. And so, um, but um, so how how do we normally try to approach getting from the aspirational to the actual? Does anyone have any any ideas out there? Like, what's the first first word first word that comes to mind? Anyone? New Year's resolution. Okay. Uh, anyone else? Try harder. Try harder. Okay. <laughs> yes, white knuckling. Um, it's 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 mostly in the doing that we try to get from aspirational to actual, right? Um, and uh, I I've been doing a lot of doing um, the last couple of years, and. Um, the um, I've, I've kind of grown up with the, the mentality. It's like if you if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself, which is like it's great for for work and employment and, and all of that. But it's not it's not always great for life because you can you can overdo it. You can burn yourself out. You can um, come to the end of your rope and, and all of that um, in so many different ways. I'm sure there's plenty of ways that you all have experienced that I have yet to experience. And, um, but um, there, there's a, um, sorry. There, there is, there is um, this this tension in in the Old Testament um, where you you see God bless people with uh, the works of their hands um, in building the tabernacle or um, in a in a number of other things. You have to love the Lord your God with all of your strength. is is one of the um, is one one part of the greatest commandment. Right is to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, um, and I've been living in that. But um, we, there's also a lot of the Old Testament which cautions us against 
making the works of our hands into idols. Um, and um, uh, making, making it about building our kingdom and not God's kingdom. And wherever the line is for you, you kind of need to figure it out on your own because that's between you and God. And I've leaned too much into doing um, for my own sake and making it about what, what I think the world should look like, not what God wants the world to look like. And there's too much um, brokenness in the world. Um, and I won't be able to fix it. And it's up to God to fix it. And he is the one who will ultimately bring everything back together. So um, I've completely gone off script. And um, <laughs> um, I'm just going to, since coming back from my trip, um, I had sort of been reflecting a lot on um, the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, um, which is a great book, which has been recommended up here several times already. So if you haven't read it already, go ahead and read it. It's great. Um, but I'd also just like to, um, in finding out what it means to love God and how God loves us, I would just like to go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 13. Um, and not in the fluffy context that it's normally used in, but um, so, so yeah, in the context of doing and also stopping doing and moving from aspirational to actual. Um, so if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor or give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away the ways, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. 
Now I know in part. Then I shall be fully known. Even as I am fully known. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Um, yeah. So... Um, I'm going to invite you all to have communion as you will and just think about, about that and how we move from aspirational to actual just a little bit each day. And we see now in part. Um, and one day, one day we will see fully. <laughs>